Okay, good morning. If you'd like to find a Bible, if you have a Bible, would you like to turn out, rather, to uh, the book of Revelation and chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of the Bible but would like to follow in one, then just raise a hand. One will be brought to you. Just heard my youngest daughter ask Rach, are we all done? Are we all done? No, not yet. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Um, okay, there's one hand up down at the front, a couple of hands at the very front. Just keep it up, it will be seen. Okay, um, when I've been preaching over the last few uh, weeks and months, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. We are now very much in the, the business end of the book. We're uh, going to look today at a, a vision that shows the coming Christ, Jesus Returning, If you like, this is what the book has all been drawing towards. We've seen any number of visions, and they've shown us, if you like, uh, a picture summing up the whole of AD history. Different visions that have shown us all that's been going on. Um, up in, From the moment that Jesus ascended to heaven after he uh, died and was resurrected, from that point all the way forward to a future time when he comes again, we've seen great, weird, and wonderful Visions, and now we get to see the vision of Christ returning. Let's uh, let's read then Revelation 19, and we'll start from verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who'd received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. We are then going to look today at that passage. Now, Sometimes when people have read the book of Revelation, uh, they have looked at it and read it trying to puzzle out the precise dates and events, the things that will happen, that they speculate will take place just before the very end of time when Jesus returns. They might look for hidden references to uh, modern phenomena like nuclear bombs uh, Apache helicopters. Maybe in there they might find the White House. Um, 
as a way of trying to work out when precisely is Jesus going to come back? When precisely is he going to return? And what those kind of speculations can do is just lead to confusion and actually fear. And the book of Revelation wasn't written that we get fearful or that we speculate about puzzles. It's a revelation of Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, may I remind you, begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not here to puzzle us or to cause us great fear. It's here to encourage us. It's here to bless us. It's what it says also in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. It's a revelation of Jesus. This whole book is to show us Jesus and in doing that it uses what's called apocalyptic language. Now many of you will remember that from when we've looked at this before, but just as a recap, apocalyptic language, I can't even say the word, is a style of language that existed and was used quite a lot about, you know, a few hundred years either side of the life of Jesus on earth. Uh, it's a style of language which is very vivid, dramatic, uses bizarre symbols to blow our minds, really, uh, with what is to come. It's the closest that we have in the Bible to a comic book. And I don't say that flippantly or lightly, but in a comic book, you open the pages and there are powerful, vivid and bright images that are trying to jump from the page. And uh, there's a lot of action. And, uh, and there's probably some significant meaning within the symbols that the comic book writer is using. That's the case here. And what we're going to look at through the course of this morning's message is what does this passage tell us? Firstly, about Jesus. Secondly, about the final battle that we see um, symbolized here in, uh, in this chapter. And lastly, we're going to say, what does this passage reveal about the church? What does it show us? What do we learn um, from it as a result of... Uh, what do we learn about the church? So firstly, Jesus. This passage here is concerned with not showing us precisely and exactly how everything will happen at the end of time. What precisely will take place in the events of human history right before Jesus comes and then indeed when he comes. This passage is not focused on how, it's focused on who. It's focused on revealing Jesus, who he is, what he's like. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This gives us a powerful glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's like. And it's totally, it's totally mind-blowing. It's baffling. It's puzzling. It's bizarre. It's vivid. There are things in here that if you try and read them in a kind of somehow in a very uh, literal sense, they can seem very puzzling. Here's just a few ways in which we see Jesus and he's absolutely awesome and really beyond our understanding. We, we see a whole number of things about him. We see his names. 
This passage describes any number of names that Jesus has. He's described as, obviously, the, the rider of the white horse. He's then named faithful and true. It goes on to say also that another of his names is the word of God. And on his robe and tattooed on his thigh is this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is completely in charge. He is completely God. He's completely sovereign. He's completely powerful. He's completely holy. He's completely awesome. And there's another name. We're told those names and then we're also told in verse 12, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Well, okay, but we've just been told these names and now we're being told, but he's got a name that no one knows. Why are we being told that? It's almost a way of saying the Jesus that we are getting to know, we will never fully know. We'll never be able to sum up Jesus with just a few titles. He's got a name that's known only to him. That means that no one else controls him. No one else has sized him up. No one can say, in a sense, well, yes, he is my Jesus, but he's not God on a shelf. He's not a God that I've created. He's not a God that I've neatly summed up and I can just place in the corner of my life. Yeah, there's Jesus, my my Jesus, my kind of, uh, my shot in the arm and I need a bit of encouragement, my safe, tender, kind of, yeah, uh, insignificant or weak Jesus that I'm in control of. No, he is absolutely magnificent and splendid. As we read through that this passage, this is what it's getting at. He's trying, as best he can, John is writing, to try and blow our minds. He's received this vision. I was standing and I saw heaven itself standing open. And I saw the rider on the white horse coming from heaven. And I'm going to try and describe him, but I can't really describe him. But I'm going to do my best, and so I'm going to use all of these amazing titles, all of this incredible description to show that he's beyond our imagination. He is beyond what we can fathom out. He is so far above us. Not a God that we've created, but one who is bringing all of history to its right conclusion. He is in control. So his names, we see his crowns, uh, on his head are many crowns. We've been singing the song recently when we've been gather, gathering together, prayer meetings and here as well. Crown him with many crowns. What a wonderful and majestic song describing what Jesus is like and what he's worthy of. But think of it. Try and draw the picture in your mind. In your mind. On his head are many crowns. Can you crown him who has one head with many crowns. It's a bit of an odd picture, isn't it? But again, it's trying to say something dramatic in a powerful way. It wouldn't do justice to the fact that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords if we only picture and imagine him with one crown on his head. He's so good, he's so powerful, he's so kingly and majestic, he's crowned with many crowns. He's got many names. He's got many crowns. We see as well what he's dressed with. And this becomes more amazing as we look at the next thing in a moment about this final battle that's about to take place. He is dressed in verse 13 in a robe. He's dressed in a robe. But he's going out to battle. If you were going out to battle, if you wanted to kind of Go out and fight. I'm not suggesting that you go and do that this afternoon particularly. 
Would you go in a robe? Or would you go in body armor? And would you take with you a few baseball bats and a few guns? Um, Jesus, the king, is arriving at the final point in history and he's wearing a robe. Is that, does that suggest that he's really vulnerable? Does that suggest that he's, is he weak? Does he, does he need kind of strength that he doesn't already have? Is he a little bit uncertain of what the outcome is going to be to world history? Is he kind of going out, heaven standing open and Jesus comes out, kind of tiptoeing his way, taking care, trying to kind of hide this way and that and kind of surprise. He's not wearing camouflage. He's not, he's not in any way worried about what's happened. And he's wearing just a robe. Well, not just a robe. He's wearing a robe. Um, but again, it's, it's bizarre. This robe is dipped in blood. But at the moment, no battle has taken place. And at the moment, he's not been treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty that might then lead to his blood, uh, his robe appearing to be Bloody, no battle has taken place. It's, it's dipped in blood. These are, we're being shown profound mysteries. Um, and we, we do well not to kind of jump to too many conclusions and say, oh, it means this, it means this. We need to be careful. No, what we're being presented with uh, is a picture of an absolutely awesome and majestic God who's riding out in complete victory, who is unthreatened and is in complete control and who defies our descriptions and explanations he's also riding out with armies the armies of heaven were following him in verse 14 riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen white and clean they're not even dressed for battle either they're wearing white they're wearing linen going out for battle wearing linen They're unarmed. They don't have any weapons with them. But they're riding out to accompany the champion of heaven who is completely victorious and therefore they need no weapons, they need no armour because he is completely and utterly victorious and in charge. He's not threatened at all. So when we see this image here, this vivid picture of Jesus coming, the point to which all history is heading... It's breathtaking, it's wonderful, and he is amazing. So what is the Jesus that we see? What is the Jesus that we might have in our minds? What does he look like? And what, do, what, is, he, what is he like? And uh, it's important, isn't it, to see and to be reminded... Sometimes we'll, we'll be aware of, of Jesus, the teacher, how he came to his disciples and just tenderly and sometimes firmly kind of taught them. And he was with them. He was a, he was a teacher. He was tender. He was compassionate. He's sympathetic to those in need. He knows what it is to live a life on the earth. Uh, where sickness gets in, where, where there's temptation. He knows exactly what it's like. And he is a wonderful and compassionate saviour 
who is available for us. He's a friend. He's a companion. He is full of grace and full of truth. But it's important that we see him as more than just a sandal-wearing, donkey-riding pacifist who lived in Palestine. Yet it's important that we do appreciate Jesus is a humble king. He left heaven to come to earth. He, he kind of grubbied himself by walking on this planet. Not considering his equality with God something to be taken advantage of, but making himself low, coming right down to our level and going even further down than that. Becoming a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. A humble, gracious, compassionate, tender saviour who is the Prince of Peace. And so when he rides into Jerusalem, many of the uh, the Jewish people, they were looking forward to a day when a mighty Messiah would come who would defeat the Romans and kick them out of town completely. And so maybe at that point they were hoping then that he would come like this, riding on a white stallion and just defeating uh, Roman occupiers around him. How does he come? He's riding on a donkey. He comes... Humbly, He says, no, my kingdom is not like that. My, my kingdom isn't like the sort of military kingdom that you've got in mind. I've come to draw people into a good, wonderful kingdom. I've, I've come for the outcast. I've come for the outsider. I've come for the lonely. I've come for the downtrodden. I've come for the self-righteous, but you need to die to that. You need to die to your religion, and you need to follow me. You need to die to those um, those expectations of... Of, of power and triumph and all the rest of it that they may have had at that time. He came a humble king. Of course, that's who he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he comes graciously to serve us. He comes graciously to, to teach and demonstrate compassion. Sometimes place an arm around us and sympathize, knowing exactly what we, you, are going through in life right at this time but he doesn't just want to come into your life and have a cup of tea and commiserate with what's going on but basically be powerless to change anything he's saying look yes that's who i am but see this as well i am the prince of peace but i'm also the lord of lords and the king of kings i'm going to establish my peace in a new heavens and a new earth for eternity and I'm going to do that by completely overcoming evil and that's what I'm going to achieve we need to have as his people this heavenly perspective of who Jesus is this is our saviour this is our lord this is the one that we pray to this is the one that we worship. We've even been singing those words. He's, come, he, he's going to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He's holy, holy, holy. It kind of is awesome. It leads us to worship. It leads us to a sense of confidence when we pray. God is bringing all things to a conclusion in world history. And he is not worried He's not anxious about how the whole of history is going to work out. He knows, and he's in control, and he's in charge, and he's good. And being good means he's not soft. 
it's important that we don't create an impression that Jesus is, as I've just described, only, as it were, the sandal-wearing, donkey-riding pacifist. You know, I sometimes think for, for young guys and boys. It struck me last time, we, we looked at the first half of, um, of chapter 19. In the first half, we, we looked particularly at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We focused particularly on Jesus as the bridegroom. And, uh, and we looked at what the end of time would involve, this wonderful party, this celebration. And that's definitely a, a massive, significant part of it. It's interesting, though, though for young, young guys and boys, you, you don't like play with your dollies wondering, you know, who's going to get married to who and what you're going to wear at the next party you go to. And you don't take, I hope, ages to brush your hair in, in preparation for, for going out. You're a boy. And most boys, anyway, don't do that. You want to get for Christmas some Nerf blasters and recreate your own Armageddon in the back garden. And, uh, and then when you get a little bit older, you want to, you want to buy Black Ops 3 or whatever, um, and play on the computer games which more vividly show you like a real war. You want to fight. And um, it's important that you exercise that right, that you don't get carried away. You are not allowed to fight your sister. Okay? You're not allowed to beat your mum. Those are the ones you protect. Go and make some imaginary bad guys and go kill them. Not your own family members. But it kind of, there's a sense in which, actually, guys, you're... Perhaps, I don't mean this in a totally sexist way, I hope, but actually there's something in you that is wired to think it just matters to go and muller the bad guys and go and beat on evil. And, uh, and parents, don't drum that out of your good little Christian boys that they should just drink cups of tea and play indoors. They probably know, need to go out and just get totally... Bruh. Um, because there's something in us, if we're, <laughs> if we're made in the image of God, there's something in us which is ticking that actually justice matters. Actually, war on this earth is not a good thing. It, it can never be entirely exercised with justice. There's never such a thing as completely a just war. But we see one here that is. We see a king who is riding out and he makes war in and he judges in absolute justice and purity. There's no collateral damage in what God does. And um, this kind of heaven's perspective is there's, there's a God of power and absolute, absolute justice. He is good, but he's not soft. He's, he's good. It does, doesn't mean he's kind of wishy-washy. He's good. He doesn't just drink cups of tea. Jesus is riding out in complete victory. That's what it means. The white horse is showing us the rider on a white horse. The color white is demonstrating or is symbolizing. It's the color of victory. And that's what Jesus is going out. He is going out in absolute victory, in absolute glory, in absolute justice and holiness. It's not just random revenge. This is measured justice against every evil oppressor on this earth. And he is 
riding out in absolute victory to a final battle. So we see Jesus, we also see the final battle. The stage is set for an almighty war. Verse 11, the rider on the horse is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. And then later on we read in verse 19, uh, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Again, the book of Revelation uses these vivid images. We've, we've met earlier in the book the, the dragon symbol for Satan. And he uses evil, oppressive state power to bring about his purposes. In other words, the beast. And with, alongside the beast, there is also the false prophet or the second beast. And the false prophet is there to promote the beast. You don't need Jesus. You don't need salvation from him. What you need, where you find your security and satisfaction in life, is over here. That's what the false prophet is doing um, throughout world history. Don't turn to him. What you need to do is turn over here. And so now, again, we meet the beast, and, uh, and we'll meet the false prophet as well again. And so they're, they're, they're gathering all those who've kind of given allegiance to them. Satan is looking to gather them all for this one big, massive conflict. The whole of history is heading towards this point. There's this massive climax. This is what, indeed, uh, the apostles would have taught. So in, uh, in Acts 3, for example... We'll read from verse 19. Uh, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So we have the whole of history moving towards this point. We have now Jesus in heaven, where he must remain until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago. That's God's agenda, to restore everything. So when we get to um, Revelation chapter 21, we'll see there God unveiling, revealing a new heaven and a new earth, one that is completely without any corruption, one that is completely without any sin, one that is completely without any conflict, without any evil, without any pain, without any injustice or oppression or suffering whatsoever. And in order to bring that through, God is then drawing to this last battle to absolutely defeat um, and overthrow Every evil power. That couldn't happen. There can't be a holy, wonderful, glorious new heaven and a new earth if you then wander through the new heaven and the new earth and you see a massive billboard advertising a lap dancing club or another billboard kind of saying, you know, get yourself protected. Defend your home in all of these ways. Get get yourself a burglar alarm. Um, If you kind of phone this number, then... and if you pay this subscription, you can have your own bodyguards because you need to lock the door. You need to look after yourself because there's bad people out there in the new heavens and the new earth and they're ready to pounce on you. They're merciless. They're evil. And they, they're rebelling against God. Therefore, they don't care about anybody else and they're going to do harm. They're going to uh, seek to make your life a misery. You think, well, hang on a minute. 
that's not what I thought I was getting when I signed up to come to this place. But well, no, it isn't going to be like that because Jesus totally defeats and judges evil, bringing the whole of history to this crunch point, this climax. Jesus is returning as judge so that there's nothing in the new heaven and the new earth to tarnish his new creation that he has invited us to take part with. What happens then when this big crunch, this big climax, this big battle, this big conflict, it's all poised, we've arrived at this point, the business end of the book of Revelation, it seems like this massive war is about to kick off, what then happens Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who performed miraculous signs. There's no battle. There's no conflict. There's no, there's not even a struggle. There's no resistance. This is the beast we're talking about. And the false prophet. And this great allegiance of the kings of the earth coming to show you, God, who's really boss. They're gathered together in their futile and feeble attempt to overthrow God. And what does God do? He rides out on his horse, wearing no armor, and says, it's the end. And that's it. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. And so Jesus does go out with a weapon. But his name... The word of God reminds us that the sword is to do with what he says. It's not an actual sword coming from the mouth of Jesus, but his, his word, it has the same decisive power. This double-edged, sharp sword, which judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart and cuts right between them, says, this is good and this isn't, and this is the true way, and this is what I'm doing and so it's put wonderfully in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. And verse 8 says there, in describing the end times as well, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This is what happens at the end of Jesus, at the end of history. Jesus rides out in utter splendid majesty and goes, and evil goes, it's over. He need do nothing else. The Lord Jesus who said, let there be lights. And there was light. Rides out the end of history and says, that's it folks. I'm here. I've come. I've come for my people. I've come for the bride. We are going to have an autumn time. And it's time for the beast and the false prophet. And later on we'll get to the dragon as well. To be kicked into a fiery lake of burning sulfur for eternity. Who wins? God wins. That's the wonderful message of this book. There is no battle. There's no conflict. Jesus wins. So we see Jesus. We see the final battle. 
What do we see in this passage about the church, about God's people? And you might be scratching your head at that point. You think, well, where, where are God's people described in this scene, in the final, in the final battle? And you might think, okay, in verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding out on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Think, okay, well, is, is that us? It would seem the consensus amongst godly biblical scholars who are tentative to say anything too firmly about a book which is so full of crazy, bizarre images and stuff, is that's, that's the company of heaven that's an angelic army. In other words, that's, that's unlikely at this point to mean us. All of heaven, all the heavenly hosts are riding out with Jesus. And as we've already said, they need no, they need no defense, they need no weapon, they're just riding out to enjoy the victory. So, what does this say about the church? In fact, nothing. It says nothing. And that's precisely the point. Each church that first received this letter in the book of Revelation, we've read about them in the very early chapters, they were really going through it. Life was tough. The church, God's people, in the minority, big time, at this point in history. And in Asia Minor, where they all, where they all were, the real power, politically, socially, economically, wasn't the church. It was Rome. And periodically, it'd be a, a, a crackdown on the church. Many of them vulnerable. The churches that were doing really, really well as far as Jesus were concerned were the churches that were really suffering but staying true to his name and where people had died for their faith in Jesus. There are other churches and they're kind of a mixed bag. You might remember like Ephesus where there's a bit of infighting perhaps. Um, Pergamum where, you know, believers are just kind of getting sucked in to worshipping other gods and just compromising with the world around them. Uh, and the same could be true of Thyatira. There's a false prophet in the church just causing absolute mayhem. There's, there's Sardis. And in Sardis, well, there's the appearance of, of like godliness and so on. But really, it's just a reputation. It's hollow now. They're, they're not really going for Jesus in a really zealous way. There's Philadelphia, they're doing well, but again, there's some challenges that they hold, and there's Laodicea too. And they're getting into to compromise, and uh, and just thinking they're more special than they are. Um, Jesus knows exactly the, the challenges and the pressures that are going on in each and every church, and it's so gracious that, that right at the outset of this book, right at the outset of this letter, Jesus speaks those specific words to each and every church and just says, I know where you are. I know where you live. I know that it's hard right now. I know that you're under pressure. I know it's even like Satan's got his throne in your hometown and you're, you're just experiencing persecution and hardship. You are under the cosh. And if you aren't really experiencing persecution, that's probably just because 
in feeling under pressure, you've started to compromise in some ways. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly the problems. And what can happen for us is we, today, can look around the church. We can look at the church nationally, even globally. We can look at our own church and just think, ah, but there's, there's things that aren't sorted. There are things that aren't right. There are things that aren't great. There's, there's suffering and hardship over here. There's, there's temptation and trial over there. Um, there's, there's pain and, uh, there's uncertainty about the future. And what can happen then is, is if we kind of focus in loads on those things, we've got an enemy who wants to bring a lot of discouragement. So in a sense, where is the church right here in this passage? Well, it doesn't appear to be there. Why is that the case? It's because Jesus is saying to the church, lift your eyes up to this. Lift your eyes up to heaven's perspective. I know what's going on. I know what it's like where you live. I know. And it's not, there's nothing to say about that. There's chapters one to three where I can, I'm specifically looking at those things and speaking to you. How about now? Even in the midst of those things going on, you lift your eyes to this. You see, we've got an enemy who will do everything he can, that dragon, do everything he can to discourage, to depress, to make the church despondent. Maybe it's not even looking at the church nationally and globally that gets you down. Maybe it's just looking at yourself. Oh. And again, it's not that God is saying, just pretend that everything's fine. You know, just pretend that there's no sin in your life that sometimes you need dealing with. No, we're not being invited into kind of pretense and make-believe. We're being invited to pay attention to the end. Now, why is that? I believe it's because we've got an enemy who wants to say to you, wants to say to the church and everyone who believes in Jesus, the end's already come. It's the end really for you, isn't it? It's the end of the road. He can pick on any number of things to say, surely that's it. The very, the very most you can help for now, hope for now, is just to, just to mark time, really. There's, there's nothing more to be said. The church is small. He wants to make the church smaller. He wants to make those who are in the church depressed and feel hopeless because that's how he feels because that's what is the case for him. See, for the dragon, for Satan, all he can do is mark time because for him, the end has effectively come and will finally come when that's it. Jesus comes and goes, Pah! it's over. And anticipating that judgment, feeling, in a sense, that rejection because of his evil and rebellion 
He wants you to feel the same. He wants you to feel discouraged. He wants you to feel it's over. He wants you to feel like all we're doing now is marking time. Jesus is saying, no, it's not like that. Whatever in your mind or in your heart come, bubbles up sometimes and whispers to you, it's over for you really, isn't it? It's the end now, isn't it? That's it. It's downhill from here. We're just marking time. Whatever it is, globally, nationally, locally or personally, that whispers or shouts that in your ear is a satanic lie. Jesus is saying that is not the end. Let me show you what the end is like. Here it is. I turn up. What that doesn't mean is that from this point in life, we effortless, effortlessly glide through an ever rosier set of circumstances. Everything's always on an upward trend and everything's always beautiful and the church is always evidently this resplendent and triumphant group of people who walk with their heads held high and uh, never get sick and never have to repent of sin. No, it's not like that. Obviously, we walk through real life. Real life sometimes involves repentance and turning away from sin. Real life sometimes involves getting sick, sometimes getting healed, sometimes not getting healed. There are any number of potential things that can happen that would suggest that our setbacks, our disappointments. Yeah, we're not being asked to be unreal. But let's listen and heed to, to what this is revealing to us. That's not the end. This is the end. This is how it works out. This is, therefore, where we can receive, in the light of this, we can receive comfort in the here and now. Confidence in the here and now. Might mean sometimes we've got to be contrite. We've got to turn away from sin. But this is a revelation of Jesus. If we get hold of this, if we get hold, as it says right at the beginning of Revelation, to what this means. If we take to heart what is in this book, doesn't cause just fearful speculation about the future and about some Armageddon with Apache helicopters, nuclear bombs and the White House. It doesn't lead us down that line. It actually leads us to blessing. It leads us to encouragement. It leads us to, yes, it can seem at times like all hell is breaking loose. But I've seen the end. And we need to live in the light of that vantage point. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again and he ascended to heaven. And Jesus is coming back to bring everything to a conclusion. History is not just going round in circles. Your life, though it might seem sometimes to be going round in circles or to reach a dead end, is not doing that. Jesus is bringing the whole of, of history to a glorious, sometimes it looks grisly in that chapter, conclusion. 
And he's doing the same to our lives. He's bringing it through to a glorious conclusion. Look at the images, the pictures. It kind of seems, there are aspects of it that seem horrific. We've had the wedding feast of the Lamb that we were looking forward to last time. We look at this one and it's the other way around. There's a completely grim feast. It's not kind of us going home and having a nice roast bird. It's the birds coming down and eating those who are opposed to God. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable to focus on that. The Bible doesn't hide those things from us. But the Bible wants us to see Jesus. The Bible wants us to see his justice. The Bible wants us to see his absolute holiness and purity. The Bible wants us to see that Jesus is in control of world history. He's bringing it to a conclusion. In that, we find hope. In that, confidence when we pray. In that, uh, comfort. Comfort for those who mourn. Again, the, the church would have been going through it in any number of ways. And the church in, in Thessalonica, they had a tough time. People died in the church in Thessalonica and it kind of left them thinking, again, is that it? Is that the end? Is that the end for them? What happens now? We were expecting Jesus to come back really soon. Some people have died before he's come back and that's really shaking our faith. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, and reading from verse 13 onwards, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other in these words. City Church Sheffield. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is drawing everything to a glorious conclusion. This is not the end. Jesus holds those who have died in his hands. And we will be with Jesus together with them uh, for all time. Encourage each other with these words. Say something similar in Hebrews. Now, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. We see this day, it's approaching. Let's encourage one another with this truth. Amen. Let's pray together.